Revelation 21, if you found it, why don't you stand as we read together God's Word. Today marks the third and final study of this penultimate chapter, the second to last chapter of God's Holy Word. It's a continuation of a series I began last summer when the pastor was away where we studied Revelation 22 and it's a series entitled The Urgency of Eternity. This summer and these past two weeks leading up to today, we've looked at the second to last chapter, chapter 21, in a series entitled The Certainty of Eternity. And we have noted two certainties we'll have. The first certainty we noted in verses 1 through 8 is that grace awaits us in eternity. Last week in verses 9 through 21, we noted also glory awaits. But today, Thirdly and finally, I pray you'll see that most importantly, not just grace awaits and not just glory awaits, but God awaits. God awaits. And I want you to see why I say this is the greatest gift we could conceive of. And don't take my word for it. Look down, if you will, beginning in verse 22, and allow me to read down through verse 27 as we pray. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there's going to be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but, but... But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Join me now as we pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and by the power of your Spirit grip us anew with this great gift that awaits us in you. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You've heard it said there's no place like home, but I wonder, what makes home home to you? What is the essence of home? You young boys and girls in this room, you'll be going to camp this week. Pastor Kyle, when you get home from camp and you come back home, what is it that makes home home to you? Is it your bed? Is that what you're going to run home and hug? Is it your bike that you've missed riding all week long? Maybe you little girls, your Barbie doll that you've wanted to play with? Is that what makes home home? You students in the room, you're a week off from student camp. When you get back from camp, what is it that makes home home for you? Is it your couch? Is it that TV you've missed so much? Is it the fact that at last you got your own bathroom again? Is, is that what makes home home? You men in the room, perhaps you can resonate with me. When I leave my sweet wife and go on a trip, when I come home, do you think I come home and I hug the refrigerator or kiss the lamp? Of course, you know, that's ridiculous. What I do when I come home is I kiss my girl, my sweet, precious wife, and I hug my three beautiful children. You see, the essence of home is the presence of the ones you love. You know this to be true. You know that that's really what makes home home. So now let's transpose it. Let's apply this to heaven. I wonder, what is it that makes heaven heaven? 
It gets a little bit more complicated here because if you were honest, most of us are inclined to think of heaven in terms of the great gifts of grace he promises us in heaven. So when you think of heaven, you may very naturally be thinking, I can't wait for the unlimited pleasure that awaits me. No more pain, no more sickness, sorrow, suffering, no crying, dying, sighing, writhing in pain. It's all going to be gone. I can't wait for that day. Or maybe you may be so inclined to not just think of his great gifts of grace that awaits. Maybe you can't help but conceive of the great gifts of glory that he has promised you. There is going to be untold beauty ahead of you. All the decay of this world will be no more. You are going to stand on streets of gold. It will be a wonderful recreated new Jerusalem, so to speak. I can't wait for that. Is, is that the essence of heaven to you? His great gifts of grace and glory? John Piper, a noted pastor of this generation, he once remarked that the critical question for our generation, and I would go so far as to say the critical question for this church gathered here today is this. You ready? Would you still want heaven if you could have all the pleasure you've ever wanted, all the food you've enjoyed, all the people you love, all the things you like? Would you still want heaven if you would have no pain, no sickness, sorrow, suffering, no natural disasters, no mental illness, no physical illness, your spouse is made whole, your children are made whole? Would you still want heaven if you could have all of those wonderful gifts of grace and glory and yet Jesus wouldn't be there? Would you still want it? That is the critical question of our generation of this hour for what I want you to see in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, is that what makes heaven heaven is not his wonderful gifts of grace that we saw in verses 1 through 8. It is not merely his wonderful gifts of glory that we saw in verses 9 through 21. My friends, take it to the bank. What makes heaven heaven is that God awaits you. The essence of heaven is his presence. I want you to see, and not just see, I want you to feel it, that God's greatest gift to you really is not heaven, but himself. Do you believe that? It's one thing to just mentally assent to it as a believer and say, well, that sounds right, but do you believe it? Do, do you see what King David saw when in the Psalms he, he uh, very clearly says that in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you, do you agree with the Apostle Peter when he said that Jesus died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God? He didn't say to heaven. He didn't say out of hell. He didn't say to the streets of gold. He said to God. Do you believe, do you agree with the Apostle John when in John 17 and verse 3 he says, this is eternal life, that they may know me. Is that how you would sum up eternal life? That you get God? That you get to behold him? Can you agree with the Apostle Paul when he said, to live is Christ, but to die really is gain? Do you actually believe that? I wonder, the question I want rolling around in the back of your mind this hour is, why do you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to go? And may I submit to you from this text three reasons why I believe with all of my heart that God's greatest gift to you is not heaven, but himself. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. Firstly, I want you to see on that final day when we stand in eternity, you are going to at last realize, firstly, that he really is all you 
ever needed. He's all you have ever needed. Now look with me, if you will, at verse 22. All the verses heretofore have described what John has saw. He saw all these wonderful gifts of grace and glory. But notice in verse 22, he finally points out something he doesn't see. There's something missing. And what he points out to be missing may not strike you as profound. You're like, uh, okay, I guess that makes sense. I don't understand the importance of this. Notice with me in verse 22. He says, and I saw no temple. Now I want you to think with me for a moment how important it is that John saw no temple. Are you familiar with the language temple? You, you aren't by experience because this isn't a temple. We don't really engage with temples anymore. It's kind of an archaic distant concept. But in the Bible, every time you see the word temple, I want you to always think this. Temple always refers to the place where God is. It denotes God's presence. So, for example, every time the people of God sought to meet God, they came to a place that we would call a temple. And this is as old as the Old Testament. In fact, the, you have to go back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2 to see a time and place where you did not have to meet God at a special place. For example, in Genesis 1 and 2, the whole world was, so to speak, a temple. It was called the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt with his people. He moved amongst us. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God as he walked through the cool of the day. Until in Genesis 3, when they sinned, sin separated them from God. God drove them out of his cosmic temple, so to speak. They were booted out of Eden, and an angel with a flaming sword was placed at the, at the perimeter, keeping them from the presence of God. And from that point forward, the rest of the Bible is a story of God's people only getting to God through something else. And what is that something else? Blood. Blood has to be shed. God slays an animal, slays an animal when uh, he gives them skins to cover their nakedness of sin. Cain and Abel clearly are engaging in sacrifices because Abel brings one as an offering. You see altars start to be introduced through Genesis. And it's not all the way until the days of Moses when God frees his people from Egypt that God defines for them a particular structure in which they can come and meet him. No longer do they meet at just mere altars all over the land. They meet God in a defined place. It was almost a mobile home, so to speak, called the tabernacle. Do y'all remember the tabernacle, Exodus 34? It literally means the dwelling place of God. And he describes the tabernacle in a most detailed way. And if you go back and read Exodus, I want you to notice this. I, we don't have time to read it now. But if you go read Exodus, you're going to notice the description of the tabernacle sounds a whole lot like the Garden of Eden. He describes all the carvings of fruits and trees and all this garden imagery, pomegranates, palm trees, etc., the description of the great lampstand in the tabernacle looks and sounds an awful lot like the tree of uh, knowledge, uh, the tree of life. It's amazing, the imagery. In other words, when God was designing this tabernacle, he was designing a place that would draw your mind back to the paradise of the Garden of Eden when you used to be able to walk in the presence of God. But what was the big difference? There was an outer court. There was an inner court. There was a veil. You couldn't approach the Holy of Holies. Only a high priest could, and he only could once a year. And he did so at the risk of his own life. Once they stopped wandering in the wilderness and they camped out in the land of Israel, 
They built a permanent structure, no longer called the tabernacle, but called the temple on Mount Moriah, where presumably Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, that great mount of provision where God provided, Jehovah Jireh provided a sacrifice, a substitute for the sins of mankind. That great temple, that temple was built by Solomon in around the year 900 or so. It got destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586, and then a second temple was built. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it tells you the story of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, and that temple stayed up until the days of Jesus. It actually got a renovation shortly before Jesus was born by King Herod, so it got the name Herod's Temple, but that temple ended up being destroyed in the year 70 AD by the infamous Roman Empire, and since that day, no temple has stood And God's people have longed for a temple. The people of God, the true people of God, Christians know that Jesus actually fulfilled the temple. Do you remember Jesus said, I'm going to tear this down and raise it in three days because he was talking about himself. He said, I'm the great high priest now. You don't need a temple anymore. And God's people have known that we are in fact the temple of God. God dwells within us. His presence is within us through the Holy Spirit. But the Jewish people have been longing for a physical temple because they don't believe this. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And now we, as gospel people, can stand there and be amazed at the fact that we aren't waiting, aren't longing for another temple to be built where we can at last see God face to face because verse 22 tells us, One isn't coming. There will be no temple, for on that day, all of heaven will be as one giant temple. All of heaven will be the place of God's presence. All you've ever needed, you're going to have right before you. Now, I know that doesn't hit you. If you're anything like me, even when I was studying it, it didn't hit me until I put myself in the shoes of the Jews of that day. Just imagine yourself being a Jew who would have originally received this letter of John on the Isle of Patmos. They had been sacrificing for years until at last Jesus came and said, no longer do you need to make sacrifices, for I am the final sacrifice. Imagine the shock they would have felt when after years of going to the temple, Jesus said, no longer do you need a temple, for I am the presence of God. You are now a temple of God. That almost sounds blasphemous. Imagine the shock of the Jews of that day when they learned that no longer does the veil separate you and the holiness of God, for Jesus has ripped it in two. It sounds insane. Imagine the sheer shock and awe and wonder of the fact that no longer do you need a priest to go between you and God, for now you have a great high priest in Jesus. You can now approach his throne of grace with confidence. Imagine how shocked those Jews were. Now apply that to us when we step into the gates of glory one day. There is coming a day where we are going to stand in his presence, and you and I are going to be stunned, shocked, amazed at the fact that at last we are before him. No longer do we have to walk by faith. We'll be able to walk by sight because we're going to see him. No longer are we going to have to fight the fight of faith anymore. For what is going to happen? You and I are going to be changed, perfected. Our faith will become sight. Temptation will no longer cling. Sin will be eradicated. It'll be no more. It's going to be an utterly new existence. No longer are we going to have to hope in the promises of his word for every jot and tittle, every promise and prophecy will be fully fulfilled. We're going to stand in his presence and be amazed that everything has changed and everything we've never needed in this world, we no longer need for we have all we need in him. Would you just stand with me amazed at the fact that there's coming a day when there will be no temple, so to speak. God will stand before us face to face. We will behold him and you will fully, finally, at last realize that all you have ever 
ever needed, you have in him. I wonder, do you actually believe that? Do you? Let's test ourselves. Do you believe that he really is your deepest need? Consider for a moment today, what do you perceive? Just be honest with yourself. What do you think is your deepest, greatest need at this moment? Is it your crippling anxiety? Is it your wayward child? Your wandering spouse? Your draining wealth? Your failing health? Your ever-darkening depression? Are, Are those the greatest, most acute needs in your life right now? If that is true, if you just feel that I'm asking you, I'm not asking you to make light of those. Oh, those are real things. But I'm asking you to just take your eyes off the horizon and look up for a second. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and remember Peter's precious promise that Jesus died for you, not merely to give you these great gifts of grace and glory. And they're coming. Praise God, they're coming. But the greatest gift God gave you is not his gifts of grace and glory. It's the gift of himself. Jesus died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter tells us, to bring us to God to him, so you're going to get him. There's coming a day where every need in your life will be fully, finally fulfilled and met in him. Your greatest, deepest need this moment is, in fact, not your health. It is not your wealth. It is Jesus himself. He is coming one day, and you're going to have him fully, and all of your needs will be met in him. So take heart, my friends. One day you're going to have all you need met in him. But secondly, I want you to see, beginning in verse 23, he's not just all you need. You're going to notice on this final day, he really is all you've ever wanted, which might strike you funny because you have some very real desires of your heart, some real wants. Let's just consider heaven, for example. How easy is it for each of us to conceive of heaven in terms of all the great gifts of grace and glory that await us? When I think of heaven, my mind typically goes to the glory of seeing people I love that I haven't seen in years, The joy of having no sickness, sorrow, suffering, pain, no crying, dying, sighing, writhing in pain. I mean, those are wonderful gifts, but I want you to think about it. As as wonderful and glorious as those seem, I want to compare those glorious promises God gives us. I want to compare it to my iPhone, which I don't have on me right now. Y'all have a phone? Okay, so have you ever woken up in your bed and pulled your phone out? If you're anything like me, I do this far too often. I grab my cell phone off the nightstand, and I turn this brightness all the way down, But even when I turn it on, the light is so bright in my dark room that it wakes my wife up and it hurts my eyes. And I got like one eye closed as I'm looking at it. Now that same phone, that same light, which looks blinding in a dark room, when I took that phone to my neighborhood pool yesterday, it was as if the phone didn't work. I'm like staring at it. I got the brightness all the way up and I can't see anything because the bright noonday sun is outshining the light of that screen. And this is what I want you to see. All of God's great gifts of grace and glory he's promised you, it's like this phone. They seem wonderfully glorious this side of eternity. In this dark, dying world, it seems like how could anything compare to the glorious fact that I'm going to be free from pain? How is anything going to compare to the fact that my son will be made whole? How could anything compare to this until you step foot into heaven and you experience what Revelation 21 and verse 23 says? Just look with me. It says the city's going to have no need of sun. It's going to have no need of the moon. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. 
there is going to come a day where the light of God's glory is going to shine so brightly, it is going to be like the noonday sun on a cell phone. It is going to make all the brilliance of his gifts of grace and glory pale in comparison to the light of his glory. You're going to look at him and be so enamored with him, you are going to realize what you really wanted was not all of his gifts of grace and glory. All you really want, you have in him. You are going to be so overwhelmed with the light of his glory and grace that watch what's going to happen. You are going to at last see what Adam and Eve saw. Adam and Eve who walked in the garden and beheld the one who spoke and said, let there be light and there was light. You're going to finally see that creator of all light that they saw. You are going to one day see what Moses saw when he beheld the Shekinah glory of God and it made his face radiate. You are going to finally see what the famed prophet Isaiah saw when he beheld the light of God's glory such that his light would shine on all the dark nations of the world, he writes. You are going to see what the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, saw when he prophesied that the sun, S-U-N, sun of righteousness was going to rise. You are going to see one day at last what the famed apostle John saw when he said the light of the world is coming. This true light which gives light to every man is coming into the world. You're going to see what Peter, James, and John, the inner circles of the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when they beheld Jesus be metamorphosized, changed, transfigured before him into resplendent light and glory. You're going to see it. You're going to see what Paul saw when he was on the road to Damascus and a brilliant light came and struck him and he saw the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus on that road. There's a day coming when you are going to see what James saw when he describes God as the father of lights. You're going to see one day what Peter saw when he described Jesus as the bright morning star and as a marvelous light. You are going to see in full what you and I have, each of us have seen in part for the Bible says that when God saved us, you and I at last saw, we who were once blind, now saw the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is in the face of Jesus Christ. But man, we have seen through a glass dimly, have we not? We've tasted it, but there's going to come a day when we are going to see it in full. And when we do, when that great day comes, when we stand in his presence, the light of his glory and grace is going to shine on us such that it'll drown out all the darkness of doubt in the light of certainty. Do you realize there's coming a day when all of your uncertainties about God will be vanquished? You're going to know more about him in a minute than you would spend a lifetime learning. Just consider the glory of the fact that you that have lost a child at far too young of an age, maybe an infant, your little baby knows more about God this moment than you will ever hope to know in 10,000 lives. For you will stand in the light of his presence and all doubt all uh, insecurity will be drowned out in the light of certainty. You're going to not only have all doubt be drowned out in his light, in that moment all despair will be drowned out in the light of his joy. In that moment you're going to have matchless joy. He'll wipe away every tear from your eye in that moment and you will see clearly at last and you will know all is well, all is well. All is well. What wonderful joy and security awaits us when the light of his presence drowns out all despair. It drowns out all doubt. It's going to drown out all the decay of this world. Everything broken about this world will be made right. His light will shine anew on all creation and we will see it to be beautiful. Have you ever noticed that the trees are beautiful 
more beautiful in the rising or setting sun than they are at night or even in the middle of a blazing day. The way the light falls illumines the beauty of creation and God's light will perfectly fall on the new Jerusalem, on heaven, on earth, and you will see matchless, unspeakable beauty at last. It's going to have a light that drowns out all despair. It's going to drown out, my friends, all decay, drown out all doubt, drown out all division. For notice in verses 24 through 26, it speaks of these nations. In the original language, that's ethnes, that's people groups, all the tribes and tongues and nations of the world are going to come together into this great heaven, this new Jerusalem. And what does it say in verses 24 through 26 they'll bring? They're going to bring with them glory and honor, which means, this is what's astounding, one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess Jesus. The Muslim nations of the world are going to bring glory into heaven to Jesus. The Hindu nations of the world will bring the glory due Jesus. The Buddhist nations of the world will bring the glory due the Son. The pagan nations of the world, the secular nations of the world, this nation will come and bring glory and honor to the name above all names. We will all cast our crowns at his feet. The most powerful in all world history will be forced to reckon with the fact that there is but one King of kings, there is but one Lord of lords. The nations will bring their glory and honor to him in all disunity, all idolatry, all doubt, all despair, all decay will be vanquished no more in the light of his glory and grace. So just bask with me in that wonderful fact that there is coming a day when anything and everything you could ever want will be found and had in him. On that day, he's going to be all you want, that great light of the world. On that day, he's going to be all you need. You won't need a temple because you're going to have him. And may I give you one third and final truth to nail upon your heart. For in verse 27, I want you to see, he's not only all you need, he's not only all you want, he is going to be on that final day truly all you have. Have you ever heard it said, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have? You'll probably spend a lifetime learning that. But there is going to come a day where you're going to know it. For on that final day, you will stand before him. And verse 27 illustrates for us that we're going to stand naked, as it were, fully exposed. His light is going to probe such that nothing can be hidden anymore. The real you will be on display. You'll stand exposed. You'll stand helpless. Not only are you not going to be able to hide anymore, you're not going to be able to try anymore. The day of repentance is over. The real you is standing there, and it's judgment day. The verdict is about to be reached. You're going to stand desperate in that moment because your life is not going to do much of anything to help your case. You can't cry out to him anymore. On that day, you're going to stand there, and you're going to finally know that God really is all you have. And when you stand before him on that first day of eternity, you're going to know two things with utter certainty. First, you're going to notice in verse 27, you're going to notice fully the gravity of your situation. For on that day, it says in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, which ought to send shivers down your spine. For as you stand there under the probing, exposing light of his glory, you're not going to be able to do anything but say, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not worthy. 
I'm not worthy. Revelation 21, 27 is going to come back to your mind and heart, and you're going to say, I'm the one that's unclean. I'm the one that's detestable. I'm the one that's false. This is me, Lord. This is me, Lord. On that day, you are going to stand there utterly helpless before your maker. But praise be to God, verse 27 has a second half. For on that moment, he will pull out a book. And that book is wonderfully, gloriously identified as the Lamb's Book of Life. Now let's talk about this Lamb's Book of Life before I give you the drama of that moment. Hold it, you're going to want to clap in a second. For on that moment, you are going to see this Lamb's Book of Life, which we've seen, moment, we've seen many times in the Bible. Jesus infers it when in Luke, uh, I think it's like Luke 10 verse 20, he says, your names are written in heaven. Paul tells us explicitly that there is a book of life in the book of Philippians. And in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned six or seven times. Most notably, in chapter 13, he tells us that this book of life, our names were written in it before the foundation of the world, which is mind-boggling. And now I want you to feel the drama of this moment when you stand before your maker and he begins to read your name. It says on that day, there's going to be more than one book. Don't take my word for it. Turn back one chapter to Revelation 20. Let me direct your attention very briefly to just verse 12. For on that day, your first day in eternity, when you stand before your maker, Revelation 20 and verse 12 tells us that books are going to be opened, including another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now that is a fearful prospect. For let's feel the drama of this moment. God Almighty will stand before you and he will take out the book of your life and he will begin to turn page by page, so to speak. And with every turned page, it's like one more nail in the coffin. It's just one more piece of evidence to say, guilty, guilty, I'm not worthy. He turns to the chapter of your teenage years, unclean. He turns to the chapter of your early marriage, detestable. He turns to the chapter of your career, false. With every turning page, it becomes all the more certain, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. It would be as if you feel like melting into the very floor until at last God Almighty pulls out another book. It's not your book. It's the Lamb's book. And when he opens that book, Therein he finds a name, your name, written in the blood of the Lamb, paid in full. Every chapter of your life paid in full. Every dark thought, every deed you've ever committed paid in full. Consider the glory that your name is written in this book. Your name will be written in that book unconditionally. It says your name was put in it before the foundation of the world, which just boggles the mind. Your name is going to be written in this book unfadingly. It's not written in ink that will fade. It's written in the indelible blood of the Lamb that will never fade. This is an unchangeable written name in this book. Your name will never be erased. It will never be blotted out. You are secure in the blood of the Lamb. 
your name, my friends, is written in the Lamb's book of life because it's not your book, it's the Lamb's. Which is why on that day, in that moment, I surely suspect all of us will fall to our faces and join the chorus of all creation that says, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Because we got nothing else to say. We're not looking forward to his gifts of grace in that moment. We're not looking forward to his gifts of glory in that moment. We're so consumed with the light of him himself and the fact that our names, unworthy as we are, are found in the Lamb's book that we can't help but sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so this day, I plead that those of you who have not done so yet, would you join me and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him this day, for he is all you've ever needed. You have come into this room believing sincerely that you have great deep needs in your life, and I plead you would see the deepest, greatest need that undergirds all your other needs is him. So come to him and just cry out in faith, Lord, I need you. I hope you see this day that he's not only all you need, he really is all you've ever wanted. He is underneath all the desires of your hearts. The essence of sin is you trying to find satisfaction in something other than him. So throw yourself upon his mercy and cry out, not only, Lord, I need you, say, Lord, I want you. I long for you. Oh, God, I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I want you, oh, God. For on that day, when you stand before him, he is all you're going to have. He will be your only hope. And so give yourself to him this day. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And before I pray, may I give you one final word. Dear church, in this room, I know most of you have probably beheld the Lamb. You have tasted and seen that God is good. You know the price that has been paid for you. But I wonder, after these three weeks, do you have a renewed certainty concerning the eternity that awaits you? Do you know now by faith the unspeakable grace that awaits you? The sheer wonder of the fact that he will one day wipe away every tear from your eye, so stop worrying about the things of this world? Do you know with new faith now the unspeakable glory that awaits you? We're grasping for words here. It's the best word we can use to describe the otherwise indescribable glory awaits. And do you now know this Lord's day that God's greatest gift to you is not heaven, but himself. That yes, glorious grace awaits. Yes, glory itself awaits. But praise be to God, God awaits. Do you know that? Do you have an unshakable certainty that that's coming? If you do, I want to invite you this side of eternity as we continue to walk by faith and not by sight, as we continue to fight the fight of faith, would you join me in turning your eyes upon Jesus and looking full in his wonderful face? For when you do, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Praise God for Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in the time of commitment, we're going to sing that very song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. For some of you, this will be the first time you do that. If you know that your name is not inscribed 
in the Lamb's Book of Life, the invitation to you is to come. There are pastors at the front who are here to pray with you. It is their great privilege, their heart's desire to meet you. You come. But for the vast majority of us here today, I think we all ought to, in one accord, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and confess all the things of this world have not seemed strangely dim to us. But let's get our eyes up and let's behold him and watch it grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Praise you, O God. We praise you that your great gift to us is not merely your gifts of grace and glory in heaven, but it is you, yourself. I pray you would renew our faith that there is coming a day when we will have you we will behold you, and we will know at last, you are all we've ever needed, you're all we've ever wanted, and you are all we have. I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet as you do. The invitation to you, as John leads us in a song of response, is to come.